We're so blessed on many fronts today. Y'all, five years, five years old, the story Houston, as of yesterday. All right. So five years ago, yesterday, February 22nd, 2015, um, we celebrated our very first official worship service in the gymnasium across the parking lot. And a lot of uh, a lot was different back then in many in many ways, and um, I just remember that day just feeling so nervous and uh, and scared and not sure of what was going to happen, and and thinking about how God has come through again and again. It really is, I think, cause for celebration. Now, listen, I will be confessional here and tell you. Uh, celebrating and looking back is never a strong suit at the story. We don't do that well. We just go right on to the next thing, and that's kind of our MO. But it's really important at times like today to look back and be grateful for all the ways that God has come through. Because we have made a ton of mistakes. We have messed up in a thousand different ways, but he still is faithful I was looking this week at our um, projections. We had a pro forma projection sheet that every church planter has to fill out in order to like prove yourself, right? So you, you want people to invest in your church plant. And so you tell them, hey, we think by this time we can have this many people and this make this much of a difference. And five years ago, we filled out a pro forma projection sheet that said um, we, we expect by the end of year five to have 500 people in worship and to have baptized 150 people. Well, y'all, this is the end of year five, and we are welcoming well over 900 people for weekend worship, and we've baptized over 400 people. And so God's good. He's faithful. I'm telling you, it is. And again, I just can't express how, how little we know about this work. Like, we, it's not a master plan. It's just God at work. And it is, it is a beautiful thing to behold. In spite of us, sometimes he does the, the greatest things. I will, it will, I, I will say it has been a, a little bit of a whirlwind. It does feel like this five years has taken more than five years off my life um, because of the stress and the work. And somebody sent me this meme that I thought really resonated with my heart. It says, who said pastoring a church is stressful? I'm 42 and feeling great. And... Uh, <laughs> When I look in the mirror, I see something real similar to that, and uh, I'm not even 42 yet, but I feel beyond it. And I, it's a stressful, it's a stressful life sometimes. But you know, even that is just us and our own expectations and our own, you know, shame working itself out. And that's not God. We do that to ourselves. And it has been a truly beautiful journey. I would not change a thing, not a thing. Because I, I look around at what we're able to do here and look at the thousands of lives that have been changed by. Something that started five years ago today, thousands of lives changed. And if you want to make a difference with your life, there's lots of ways you can do that. And writing a check to an organization once a year or something, that'll change a life or two here or there. But if you want to revolutionize a generation, if you want to wake a generation up to live for something more, like invest your life in Jesus, give your life to Jesus, and then inspire others to do the same. That's how you make generational change in a world that just seems to be, you know, chasing after one empty thing after another, like chase after Jesus and inspire others to do the same. That's why we claimed this mission five years ago. That's why we're still about this mission today, to inspire non-religious Houstonians to follow Jesus, plain and simple. We don't program, plan, or preach anything else other than what does this. Anything that a normal church would do that would, you know, cater to the members and all this stuff, we don't do any of that. Membership here does not have its privileges. It just has more work. <laughs> and so we're, we're really about this 
this mission through and through, and it really permeates, I think, our whole community. And I'm just, I'm grateful um, for that. I'm grateful for all of you and for this mission that we share. Um, that mission of making disciples is what we are about at the story. It's also, in particular, what this series of messages has been about that we've been um, working through for a month now. This is part five already of Chasing Hope. And the, the point of this series is to really dissect the lives of the men and women who followed Jesus in real time when he really walked the earth, right? So there are these people that left an old life behind completely to follow Jesus and pursue a new life in him. And so we're asking three questions each week about the, the life we're dissecting. Who were they? What did they leave behind to follow Jesus? And what difference did it make? And uh, today we're going, to, we're going to be doing the same and asking the same um, kinds of questions. So y'all have study guides. You can pull those out and get those ready. And if you're watching online and worshiping with us online, I want to thank you for doing that and for um, being here with us. Wherever you are, we love you online as well. We hope that you feel the love in this room right now. It's big. And uh, the celebration today is huge. And we wish y'all were here in person. But thank you for joining us wherever you are. And um, we're, we're going to be digging into this message now. The, the person we're going to be talking about today Unlike the first four disciples we dissected, the person we're talking about today is a woman. So her name is Mary of Bethany. And um, I want to make sure that we don't fall under any, um, any false conclusions here, that, that the entourage following Jesus around was a boys' club. It was not. And the woman we're going to be talking about today was one of many who followed him. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, lists some of the women who followed Jesus and played a key role in his life. The last line of that passage, as you see in verse 3, says many other women who provided for him from their substance. And so there were many women who were disciples of Jesus. And I think that's an extraordinary and really cool fact, given that we know that the Bible took root and grew out of a culture that was highly patriarchal. And not only is it cool that women followed him as disciples and he welcomed them to do that, it's also cool that the men who wrote the New Testament made sure you knew that. I think that's a really cool fact, whether you're a Christian or not, that these men went out of their way to make sure you knew that there were many women who followed Jesus and supported him out of their means. Some of them were married, and it was their husband's money maybe. Some of them were not married, and it was just their own money. And they were following Jesus and making sure he had food to eat and places to stay. And these were true disciples. And among them was this Mary of Bethany character, who is maybe the most underrated, under-discussed figure, prominent figure in the New Testament. She does not get her due. And I, I think partially it's because there's just so many women named Mary in the New Testament. We don't even know who she is. Which one is it? And because Mary was the most common woman's name in, in first century Judaism. But there are some things that we know about Mary of Bethany that are really, I think, enlightening and that will help us to find ourselves in Mary's discipleship story. Okay, so some of the things that we know about Mary, for example, Mary of Bethany is not Mary of Nazareth. She is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. She is not Mary um, Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. This is, or any of the other Marys, she is Mary of Bethany. 
What, what most of you know about her is that she's Martha's sister. Ever since she went to vacation Bible school, if you were in a Christian home or if your parents just needed a free childcare for you when you were a kid, like you went to VBS and you learned about Mary and Martha and Martha was a busybody and Mary got it right, right? And this is that, this is that Mary, Mary of Bethany. They, they lived um, uh, together in Martha's house, as we'll see a little bit later. Um, she was a resident of this place called Bethany. We know exactly where this place was. We know exactly what it was like. The, the archaeologists have excavated it. It's just outside of Jerusalem. It's a suburb, a gated suburb outside of Jerusalem, about three quarters of a mile to a mile outside of Jerusalem. This, even though the word Bethany means place of the poor or place of the little ones, Bethany was like a uh, high class or high uh, income, sort of a white flight today would be called a white flight neighborhood, right? Get out of that dangerous city. Let's go build a wall around our community. Like that's what Bethany was. That's where Martha and Mary lived and Lazarus lived together, right? So um, there's also indications that Mary was very likely unmarried. I mean, I think it's pretty certain that she was unmarried during the time she knew Jesus on this earth. So that had implications. It was, again, a patriarchal culture. So for a young woman like Mary, I assume Mary was a younger woman, um, but she was of age to get married. The fact that she was not married would have been a shroud of shame that she carried around, you know, hovering over her everywhere that she went because the only way, and I'm not exaggerating, the only way for a woman in the first century Judean world, the only way to prove your worth was to get married and have babies, was to attract a man, be attractive enough in some form or fashion to, to land a husband and then to, to produce babies, right? That's the only way that you showed that you were worth anything at all when you were a woman. And so Mary had neither of those things going on. Just tuck that away and hang on to that as we, as we learn more about her life. Not only was she unmarried, it's also pretty clear that she and her family were wealthy, there's several clues to their wealth, not just that they lived in Bethany. There's other clues as well. They had their own family tomb, for example, which only the highest of you know, income families had their own family tomb. And uh, there's other indications as well that we'll see in a minute. They were probably, the three of them, Mary, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, were probably orphaned. Maybe they were orphaned as adults. Whatever the case, I mean, by the time Jesus' ministry was taking shape, their parents are not in the picture um, Martha, a single woman, another single woman, should not have a house of her own if both parents are alive. And so both of their parents were probably gone. And finally, I think it's just important to note that Mary of Bethany was a prominent disciple. She was not in an auxiliary role. She was not sidelined in any way. She was a prominent disciple. The New Testament writers make sure that we know who she is. They made sure that we know more about Mary of Bethany than we know about nine of the 12 disciples. Think about that. We know more details about Mary of Bethany's life than we know about nine of the 12 disciples. And I think that's on purpose. And I think we should pay attention to who this woman was and learn from her life. And so um, that's sort of laying the groundwork. Now there's three stories I want us to work through together. You got your minds on? You ready to do a little work with me? Let's do a little learning. Even if you're not a believer, like I hope you find this interesting. Like there's three stories about her life that the, in the New Testament that really tell us who she is, what she gave up to follow Jesus, and what difference it made in her life. The first one I'm not going to spend that much time on. 
Um, if for no other reason than the fact that we've had two whole sermons preached on this one story in the last six months. And I don't just want to beat it to death. I don't want to bore you. If you've been around for the past six months, you've heard about the story of Mary and Martha and the day that Jesus and his disciples came to town. So they went into Bethany, probably on their way to Jerusalem, and they crashed at Martha's house where Mary also lived. And this was before the other stories. This is like the introductory story to Mary and Martha. Lazarus isn't really mentioned in this story. So uh, anyway, the, the idea is that Jesus and his followers go to Bethany and they need a place big enough for all of them to get some rest. And it's kind of like last week's story where we looked at, at Zacchaeus. He had the biggest house in Jericho. Jesus and his followers needed a place to stay all together. He had the biggest house, and so they stayed at his house. Some people think Jesus had a problem with rich people. Jesus leveraged his relationships with rich people to grow his ministry. And so he had rich people following him. He had poor people following him. And, and he did warn rich people about the dangers of riches, which is important. But it's not like he didn't have any rich people following him. Like there were all kinds of people chasing after Jesus. And Mary and her family were some of the wealthy ones. And so Jesus and his disciples stay at Martha's house. Now, this would have been a lot of people. If you think about Jesus, his disciples, his other, like the multitude of people that were following him, their families, you know, probably over 100 people staying in one house. And Martha and Mary lived in a culture in which it was customary for women, especially women, to provide hospitality. The basics would have been bread for everyone, water for everyone, to drink and water to wash their feet in a place in time which there was no running water like that's a lot of work chasing you know the the water at the well and bringing it back and like there's a lot of work involved there and, and baking bread for everybody having oil to anoint people's heads and all this stuff like that they would have been expected to do these customs these conventions that women did and Martha dutiful Martha she got to work right to work she, she was just slaving away, making sure everyone was comfortable, making sure everyone had bread, making sure everyone had some wine, some water. There was using a coaster on the furniture, to, no rings on my furniture. And she's and, and she getting it all done. And Mary, her no good little sister, does nothing. She just camps out at the feet of Jesus. She sits there taking the place of a disciple. That's where disciples sat and she soaked in his words. She had Jesus in her living room, and she knew it, and she just sat there, even though there was all this stuff she was supposed to be doing. Keep in mind, there was, as I said earlier, only one way for a woman to prove her worth in that world, and that was to what? Get married, attract a husband, and have babies. She had a house full of men, many of whom we can presume to be single. All kinds of potential suitors. Like, Mary, this is where you show how good your bread is, how nice you are, like how you can run a home and make everyone comfortable. And she's just sitting there. This could be an opportunity to prove herself, to find a man. But she just sits there. And this isn't in the story, but I have always imagined this is part of the story. And this is one of my favorite things about the Bible. You can read between the lines. I cannot imagine a scenario in which Martha isn't shooting Mary the glare, the evil eye, the big sister. What are you doing? Get up and help me. Like, she doesn't say anything to Mary in the story, but I cannot picture this story without that. That's why I chose this picture, because of the look that Martha's giving Mary. And I chose this picture because it's one of the only ones that doesn't show just the three of them alone together in that house. That's not the story the Bible tells. So you got other people in the background. The only more accurate portrayal of this would be if all those other people in the background were right there where Mary is, right? All there together. Most of them men. 
most of them expecting the Marys of the world to get up and serve them. My feet are still dirty. My, my tongue is still parched. My belly's still empty. Woman, what are you doing here? And so, you know, you've got Martha judging Mary. But I imagine in the real story, you also had a room full of men judging Mary. Who is she? Who does she think she is to sit where a male follower of Jesus was supposed to be sitting, right? And so this is where the, the story picks up. Martha then complained to Jesus. This is in John eleven seventeen to 22. And y'all, all these passages are going to be on the back of those study guides if you like to have it in your hand or on the screen. Um, this is John uh, 11, am I right? John 11, 17 to 22. No, I'm sorry. I skipped one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's the next one. Luke 10, 40 to 42 is this one where it says, um, she, uh, she, this Martha, came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus goes, Martha, Martha, <laughs> which always makes me think of the Brady Bunch. Martha, 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 the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but a few things are needed, or really only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Wow. So the story doesn't tell us what happened next after that. Uh, I would venture to guess, based on my experience with humans, that what happened next is not that, Mary, that Martha went to Mary and apologized and said, you've been right all along, I'm sorry. I think the way this ended was probably with Martha going back to the kitchen and slamming the cabinets a little harder and <laughs> banging the pans together a little harder and making sure everyone knew she was the only one doing anything and her no good sister is in there, uh, you know, just being lazy. And, and I think that's probably how that ended. But luckily, that story is not the end of the story the Bible tells about these two sisters. Story number two has to do with the death of their brother, Lazarus. Lazarus had been sick for some time, and uh, Mary and Martha, when their brother was getting closer to death's door, sent word to Jesus saying, come and heal him. Jesus and Lazarus were tight. They were like, like really, really good friends. So they said, come and maybe you can heal our brother before he dies, but Jesus doesn't come right away. He hesitates, he waits. And because he waited, Lazarus died. It was too late when he got to Bethany. This is the story as it picks up in John 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 17 to 22. On Jesus' arrival, um, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. And the reason that's significant, if you're a church rat, you know this, but some of you may not know this. Um, uh, Jews in the first century believed that um, a dead person might actually by some miracle, come back to life within three days of their death. And I think that could be that people had been healed in the past, but also there might have been some kind of medical, like comatose situation. They didn't know what to call it. We call it like a coma or something where someone appears to die and then they're alive. And they had seen that happening within the first few days, but they had this idea that on the fourth day, it was too late. Like, you know, midnight of the fourth day, you're done. Like, that's it. And Jesus showed up on the fourth day. So it was too late. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. All right, so some of you grew up in cultures where the same is true, right? So you might have grown up in a small town where the custom was whenever your loved one died, people filled your house with love and themselves and their casseroles and their cakes before the coroner even came for the body. I grew up in a place like that. And, uh, and so some of you know uh, a little bit what that's like, but what you need to hear here is that Martha and Mary's house is full of people. Now, when Martha heard 
that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. All right, so picture this. You remember story one, right? Uh, Their house was full because Jesus and his entourage were coming through town. Story two, which happens after that, again, their house is full, but for different reasons, right? Their house is full now because it was the custom for family and friends and neighbors to descend upon the house of the, the, where the loved ones of the, the deceased were to make sure they don't suffer and grieve alone. And if you've ever been in that situation, you know that feels nice to have people come over and, and, and feed you and take care of you and make sure you're not grieving alone. It's nice, but it's a double-edged sword. If you've ever been in this situation, you know after about 20 minutes, you kind of want them to leave. <laughs> you, you know, there's only so much you can take and you kind of wish they would just leave you alone and you just kind of nudge them out the door. These people were here to stay. A full house of people yet again. And so the same social conditions and conventions applied. Mary and Martha still were ultimately responsible for the hospitality of all their guests. Yes, they were bringing cakes, but they still had to use coasters. They still needed water to drink. They still needed to know where the bathroom was or whatever that situation was like. People still needed to be looked after. And so the same pressures applied. But listen, pay attention. Something has changed. Since story one into story two, something has changed in the heart of Martha. And something has also changed in the heart of Mary. We'll get to her in a second. But especially in Martha's heart, because look, in the first story, house full of people, she cared about nothing but making sure she did her job. She did her duty as a woman in that culture. Jesus was like the last thing on her mind. But between story one and story two, something's changed in Martha. And the minute someone tells her Jesus is outside, she leaves her house full of people to go and be with Jesus. Martha learned from Mary. And Mary's heart changed too. And you have to look real close to see this. But Mary clearly doesn't need to keep Jesus to herself. And this, I don't want to read too much into this, but Mary says four sweet words, right? It says says four sweet words in this story about Mary. Mary stayed at home. Mary stayed back. And let Martha go. Be with Jesus this time. Whereas she took that place of honor last time and made Martha do the work, this time she stays back and lets Martha go. I think that's the coolest thing ever. And I also like to imagine that there was also an exchange of looks in this story, just like there was in the first story. But instead of Martha, it was Mary. And instead of condemnation, it was affirmation. It was a knowing head nod toward the door. Martha, sister, you go. You go this time. I've got this. So Mary stays back until Martha's done with Jesus, and and then she goes to spend time with Jesus. But listen, the reason this speaks to me so much is because when you're a pastor, you see it. You see it in the lives of people who have an experience with Jesus. They sit at his feet, and they experience him viscerally, and they change inside. And the change is you become less selfish. You don't need to keep Jesus to yourself. In fact, when you have that experience with Jesus, what you really want is to facilitate other people's experiences with Jesus. And you will do anything. You will hang back. You will do the dishes. You will do the work. You will make sure that the paths are straight for other people you care about to experience him the way you did. Are you following me? You with me? So Martha hangs back. She takes care of everything so that Mar- Mary hangs back so that Martha can go. 
I see this. I see it all the time, like in the lives of our staff. I don't brag enough on our staff at the story. It's our fifth birthday, so I think I will. And we started the story, and we had two and a half staff people, two full-timers and one part-timer. And now there's like 17, eight and nine full-time and eight part-time or something. And man, these staffers have all experienced Jesus in such a visceral, emotional, and real way that they have given up so much so that y'all's paths are straight, like many of you, right? Like, and so they, for years, given up their weekends to work at a church, given up probably what they could be making elsewhere <laughs> to make what we pay them. Like they're all extremely talented, desirable staff people in any industry, right? Like they, people would want them, and yet they do this for a living because they want to make it possible for you to experience Jesus the way that they have. And it's not just our staff, it's our volunteers and our team leaders. Y'all hug a team leader when you see him because it's not easy to, it's like herding cats with some of these teams and, and they, they show up here early and they leave here late. And you know, y'all have families, you have jobs, you have places to be and other priorities, but you give and you give and you give because you want to push people toward the experience with Jesus that you've had. And it's not that the experience, it's not that you don't, crave that anymore. You still crave Jesus and you want more of him, but you're okay with others having the priority. And Mary was okay with that. At, at the end of the story, she still has her moment with Jesus. Martha comes back and she's like, okay, you go now. And they like high five and she goes out the door. Martha goes in the door and Mary goes to see Jesus. And there's this beautiful exchange at the end of the story. It's verses 32 to 37 in John chapter 11. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her saw how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. So Mary was broken up, right? And they just thought she needed to be close to her brother again. And so they followed her out the door. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord. And they replied, and Jesus wept. You see how emotive, right? How vulnerable, how expressive and affectionate Mary's love is for Jesus. And, and Jesus' love is for her as well. You know, it's funny in the story, like, I almost picture Jesus, like, with Mary, like most men in this room would be with a woman you care about when they start to tear up, and you're like, no, honey, no, it's fine, it's fine, don't cry. If you cry, I'll cry, because then Mary cried, and then Jesus cried, and it just broke him up to see her that way. When she cried, he cried. Listen, when you cry, he cries. His affections for you are as real as they were for Mary. Many of us just don't know it because we've never been led to experience Jesus in an emotive way. If anything, we mistrust emotion in our faith life. We just want to think it through. Let's have a nice time. Let's kneel and get up and kneel and get up and kneel and get up and say the words and go home. But listen, Jesus is as real now as he's ever been. You can experience him that way. Many of us are just afraid to let go, if we're honest. And I spent most of my life not experiencing him that way. And then I did, and everything changed. And now I want that for every. One, Mary viscerally, emotively loved Jesus, and he loved her the same in return. Story number three is known as the anointing of Jesus at Bethany, all right? The anointing of Jesus at Bethany takes place six days before Jesus' arrest and trial. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. He stops off in Bethlehem on the way, I mean, I'm sorry, in Bethany on the way, because it's, again, just outside the city. 
And he stays again with Martha and Mary. This is from John 12, and let's just look at this together. I love, y'all know how much I love John. John's always throwing us little hints and little jokes, and you'll see those in this passage too, even though it's a serious and somber time. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So back to Bethany, and there's Lazarus there, all right? So Lazarus is a trophy now, right? He raised, Jesus raised him from the dead, and everywhere Lazarus goes, it's like a, it's like a witness to Jesus' glory and power. Right? And so Lazarus is there. Did you know that the enemies of Jesus wanted to kill Lazarus before they wanted to kill Jesus? Like, because he was proof of who Jesus was, in, in, in addition to being a friend. So uh, here it says, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now check it out. John just throws those two words in, Martha served. Do you get it? Do you, I mean, he's like, of course she did. Like, that's the, I think that's the indication. Like, why else would you say that? Martha served. She was a Martha, you know, and, and Lazarus was there too. And then Mary, sweet Mary, took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Now listen, uh, it says Judas here. In the other gospels that tell the same story, it says several of the disciples. So who knows? Maybe John was one of them and he just wanted to write himself out of that part of the story. He's like, it was Judas, guys. It was Judas. Don't worry. Uh, (laughs) Whatever the case, it was several of them. But in this part, Judas objected saying, why wasn't the perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money back, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Again, John never pulls any punches. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So Jesus here is saying this is intended for my burial, which would happen within the week. And a pint of perfume is a lot of perfume. And I I would imagine Jesus carried that aroma with him into Jerusalem and to the cross and to the tomb. But let's talk about Mary. What is a woman like her doing with a pint of fragrance worth a year's wages? Mark tells the same story. He tells us exactly what it's worth. He said it's worth 300 denarii, 300 days wages, which is about a year's wages in that time. Okay? What is Mary doing with that much perfume? What's her plan? with that much perfume. I've heard preachers sort of um, play around with this and wonder if maybe Mary of Bethany was a prostitute because what other kind of woman would need to smell good all the time? She needed to attract her clients, right? There is absolutely no indication that Mary of Bethany was a prostitute. None. In fact, there's all kinds of indications to the contrary, right? Um, And so what else then could this be? I think the evidence is all pointing toward the fact that this bottle, this alabaster jar, as another gospel says, of uh, this nard, this spike nard worth a year's wages was Mary's dowry, right? 
And what else would it be? A year's wages of perfume? Like this was a dowry. It was intended, in, in an ideal scenario, the father of the, of the bride-to-be would take it and try to entice a, a, a potential suitor to marry his daughter with this. Look, a year's wages worth of this perfume. You can do whatever you want with it. Take it and take her too. Like that kind of thing. And yet Mary's father was gone, and so it was up to her to marry herself off. And here's Mary taking her dowry, something so precious, and just, in Judas's eyes, wasting it at the feet of Jesus. If you're not going to use it to get married, Mary, sell it to us or give it to us, and we can, like, sell it for the poor, Judas said, right? Like, my wife would like a, a ring or something. Like, give it to us. You know, he didn't really care about the poor, as John said. But you also, you always see this kind of response from religious elite types, Right? It's not just Judas being Judas. All religious elite types are offended by this kind of extravagant show of worship. Right? Mary offended their sensibilities with, with her extravagant show of worship. And listen, it was extravagant. Like, What is she giving up? If we're going to talk about what Mary gave up to follow Jesus, she is freely, without being compelled or coerced to do it, she's giving up her future as a wife. What is she saying with this, guys? She's saying that there is no man on this planet who is as worthy of this as Jesus is. There is no man in this world that I want as much as I want Jesus. And any man who comes into my life to be a husband of mine is going to have to come to Jesus with me. Like she is rocking the boat. She is saying all the metrics y'all have given me from measuring my worth in this world mean nothing to me now. All that matters to me is what this man thinks of me, and he loves me. And so I give him all that I have. And she didn't give that much to Jesus because some pastor told her to or because of shame or guilt, but just out of love. And listen, I think, I'll just tell you, I was convicted this week because it occurred to me that in our preaching sometimes, whenever we talk about a male character in the Bible, the assumption is that everybody in the room, men and women alike, should try to aspire to be more like that male character in the Bible. But whenever we have that one week where we have the, the, the talk about the woman week, it's like that one's just for you ladies. Like women in the room, like pay attention, you become more like her and we men will wait for the next week where we get back to talking about men. Listen, I need to be more like Mary of Bethany, and I am a married adult male. And I hope that you single women hear the, the message that Mary of Bethany is sending. I do hope that you hear that, that there is no man in your life who is as worthy of your deepest affections as Jesus is, so give him your most precious self. But I hope the rest of us hear him too. I, ho I hope we all hear this message too, because it's not just that one social convention of finding a husband and having babies that we all bow the knee to. We all bend the knee to different social conventions. Every one of us are chasing empty, false idols, and eventually we pay the price for it because all of our lives we've been told, we've been told, hey, you know, climb that mountain, and when you get to the top of that mountain, you'll be happy. You'll be fulfilled. You'll have the whole world when you climb that mountain, and then you get to the top of that mountain, and you're just exhausted, and you're empty. 
and there's nothing there for you. And they tell you, reach this amount of wealth and you'll feel good and secure and safe again. And you reach that amount of wealth and you're as insecure as you've ever been. Or get a house like that person and your family will be happy and respected. And you get a house like that and your family is empty and at odds. And get a car like that person and you'll have status. And you get a car like that person and all you can think about is the car that person has. It is an empty hamster wheel of a chase that leads you nowhere. And we all know it, but we all are committed to it. And so Mary of Bethany speaks to my heart, even as a pastor. Build a church like this. Reach that number. Have this amount of views online. Who cares about all of that? All that matters is Jesus and giving my deepest affections to him. That's truly all that matters. And he is truly the only one worthy of your sacrifice. And he will never coerce you for it or judge you into shaming you. To give, he will just love you until you give out of the wellspring of love in your own heart. Men and women, young people, whatever you've been chasing because the world told you to chase it, I'm calling you out to rethink that today. And I want to ask you a question in light of our conversation about Mary of Bethany. When was the last time your affections for Jesus were on display to the extent that people found it offensive. When was the last time? When was the last time that people were offended by your affections for Jesus? And Christians are really good at offending non-Christians like secular types, right? And that's that's all right. Your love for Jesus will always be offensive to some secular people. I'm saying, when was the last time you loved Jesus so much that people in the church found it arresting? It was believers, disciples who were offended by Mary of Bethany. When was the last time religious people found your devotion to Jesus bizarre? I was reminded between services, this Wednesday is the beginning of the Lenten season. It's been a long time since I've been in a traditional church setting, so I kind of forgot, if I'm honest. I know about Easter, but oh my goodness, Lent snuck up on me. This is the perfect time to be talking about this. This is the perfect time as a Christian to think about what is in your alabaster jar. What have you been valuing and saving up for some future goal? What misdirected aspiration are you ready to pour out at the feet of Jesus? Because only he is deserving and only he will give you any kind of return on the investment of your love. I don't know about you, but I wanna be more like Mary of Bethany and all of her courage and all of her affection and her willingness to rock the boat. I pray that you do too. Would you join me in, in prayer? Lord Jesus, continue to challenge us because some of us, some of us are tempted right now to think, and I feel it in the room right now, some of us are tempted to think, well, Mary of Bethany had Jesus right in front of him and in front of her, and, and we don't. Remind us right now that you are as present here and now as you have ever been. Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, remind us that you're here right now, as present with us as you were with Mary. God, challenge us to forsake all the empty idols we've been chasing, the affirmation of others, proving our worth to others by way of those social conventions that lead to nowhere. And help us, God, to focus right now all of our emotions, affections, our devotion, and our priorities.
from the feet of Jesus because only he is worthy. We thank you for your forgiveness for when we've missed that. We thank you for your love that calls us home right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.